Acts 17 and uh, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. We're looking at uh, the coming of the gospel into pagan Europe. And uh, we see how Paul has presented faithfully, relentlessly, the challenge of following Christ to the aristocrats and the judges in Athens. They were all worshippers of idols. And so he has told them they're not to think of God as an image made of gold or silver or stone. That sheer ignorance, he says, as the first Christian missionary to go to them and bring the truth to them. God has been overlooking this ignorance until now, he tells them. In other words, he didn't send a tsunami of judgment that washed across the Aegean and drowned and destroyed Athens. He didn't do that to them. He didn't do that anywhere in the world uh, because the world outside of Israel, to whom Jesus Christ hadn't come, hadn't known what they were doing. Going to temples and sacrificing to their statues. So God passed them by. And uh, God blessed them, blessed them with health and food and happy marriages and wonderful cultural achievements architecturally and in poetry and literature. And even now sending his servants to preach about Jesus Christ and his resurrection to them. But now, he says, but now things have changed. You've heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've heard about him, the crucified and risen one. You have heard that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You've heard it, but now things are different for you and that truth that you've heard requires a response once you've heard the gospel you are under obligation to think about it and realize the implications for you for your lifestyle for your values for your morals for your whole world and life view and for your relationship particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you think of a doctor who discovered an antidote to a plague that was sweeping the nation, that had brought uh, a painful death to thousands of people? And he did nothing. He didn't share his knowledge of this truth with anyone. He kept it to himself. Thousands were dying. Grief was overwhelming the land. He knew the cure, and he did nothing. What a wretch. The discovery of the truth puts us under an obligation to explain to others the truth that has been given to us. And here is the living creator, and in times past then, he has spoken to our fathers by the prophets, but now he's come very, very close to us. He's been veiled in flesh. 
He's taken on human nature. He's added it to his divine nature. He's lived amongst us. We've seen God in Jesus Christ, his son. We've heard him speak the great claims. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And we are under obligation to respond to that truth. What are we to do? Well, the apostle says, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. God requires from you a a change of values, a change of direction, new attitudes, new affections, new convictions, new sorrow for sin, a hunger and a thirst to, to live right. A trust in Jesus Christ, a determination. You're not going to grieve him. You're going to please him in all that he does. You pray, and may thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. He taught us to pray those words. And uh, you implement that prayer by doing his will day by day on earth. It means turning from unbelief to keeping God's commandments. Now, the theme of uh, repentance was the message of John the Baptist. Did you hear me as I read to you from Mark chapter 1? He preached to the nation of Israel. God restored the gift of prophecy after 400 years of silence, and he preached, and all Jerusalem went out, and all of Judea, thousands and thousands crowded around and were silent to hear what John had to say to them. John was the forerunner, and he was preparing the way for the coming of Christ. And he called on the people to repent, because they were worldly people and sinful people, and they were trapped in Pharisaism and, uh, and religious formalism. Repent, he said. Now, he was the forerunner for the Lord Jesus Christ. And people then who were offended at uh, John the Baptist's demand that they turn from their sins thought, oh, when Jesus, when we go to hear this wonderful new teacher, Jesus, he'll say things like, God loves us and has got a wonderful new plan for our lives. But Jesus' text and Jesus' theme was the same as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king himself has come. The king who has authority over creation and over demons and over disease and over death. He's here. Look at him. Listen to what he has to say. And when later the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost and Peter preached to 3,000 Many thousands of people, 3,000 of whom believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. His message was the same as John the Baptist and the same as Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins and you receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same message that Paul is preaching. Whether Peter's preaching to religious folk or Paul is preaching to pagans. They come to this great conclusion that it is time now. Now is the time for you to 
repent of your sins. A gospel without the keynote of repentance is a truncated gospel and an inadequate gospel and a diluted gospel. And sometimes diluted substances, diluted drugs, do more harm than the strong stuff that they're replacing. Someone who is a stranger to repenting of their sins is a stranger to the good news about Jesus Christ. So let me remind you this morning what God requires when he speaks to you on this theme. When he gets under your skin and into your heart and touches your conscience. Because uh, repentance is not a suggestion, it is a commandment. And it comes to you today from the King of Kings. It's addressed to all men. Authorized version says all people. The NIV says in every nation in the whole world without exception God commands all people everywhere to repent. However moral you are, and I'm pleased that you're moral. However immoral you are, and I'm pleased you're here. God speaks to you today and he commands you to turn from your sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? I'll explain to you. First of all, you've got to be honest with yourself. That's what repentance first requires. Now I might improve my, my preaching, reading books about it, listening to other men preach, so that I could preach with the tongues of men and of angels. And so maybe I could help you more then. But I can't help a liar. I can counsel with people who've broken all the rules. I've dealt with everything you can imagine. Every sort of sexual sin and cheating and breaking the law. You name it, and I've heard it and seen it. But if a person in trouble lies about himself, I can't help him. I think by the grace of God, I've been able to help um, many people make amends and get on the right path and leave the broad way and overcome those temptations and and set out in, in a new direction. But I can't help a liar. Sometimes I think lying has become a non-issue today. Everyone lies. And they lie all the time. It's almost as if they think that it's not a sin to lie. Perhaps it's a sign of postmodern relativism. The notion that there is no absolute truth and there is no absolute error. And so people have come to accept that lying isn't isn't such a bad thing after all. And telling the truth isn't essential. So they easily tell lies. But the Apostle says in, uh, in Romans 3.13, when he describes uh, man's depravity, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive And we all know how people routinely will cover up their sin. 
and then you can't help them. You can help anyone who is struggling with any sort of sin as long as he tells the truth. But you, you can't help a liar because a liar doesn't tell it as it is. The situation is compounded by the fact that when most of us get caught, we confess as little as possible. That's a fallen human problem. Are you with me now? I'm beginning to explain to you what repentance, what genuine repentance is all about. And it begins on a personal one-to-one basis when a man tells you something you didn't know about him already. On a divine and an eternal basis, it begins when you volunteer to tell God what God knows, but what you've been too ashamed to tell him and confess to him so far. When I uh, counsel people, and, uh, and I know already A plus B plus C about them, and that person adds D plus E plus F, then I know that that person is really repenting of what he's done. His repentance is deeper than murmuring, oh, I wish I hadn't been caught, I wish I'd been more careful. True repentance involves coming clean about what you did and coming clean to God about it. Coming clean means owning up to a a pattern, to a lifestyle that just marginalizes God and his requirements and his living presence from your life. God desires truth in the inward parts the authorized version says. Psalm 51. Truth from the inside out. Isn't it hard? Isn't it hard to come into a place of honesty with God and with others? We need a message from God which has come with the power of the Holy Spirit. And for us it's a continual battle to be transparent and uh, like a child, uh, unable to hide with any subtlety what he's done, like, like a dog who's eaten the cake, got on the table, and then hangs his head and shows his shame. Lying has become almost a, a non-issue today. You know, I can't get that statement out of my mind. I can't help a liar. As long as a liar is telling lies, you can't trust anything he says. It's like the old observation. If a liar says he's telling the truth, can you believe him? It shows how difficult it is if a person doesn't take on personal responsibility. You know, we live in a culture of victimization, don't we? A culture 
that rewards us for blaming others. In one of the school massacres in the USA, the gunman, after killing a lot of people, left a note behind saying, you all made me do this. Well, that's ugly and cheap and easy, isn't it? To blame others for what you have done. And it's easy when you've done something wrong to say, but everybody does it. All my friends do it. All the people in the shop do it. Everyone cheats on their spouse. Everyone yells at their children. Everyone breaks a promise now and then. Everyone lies a little bit. Everyone uses bad language. Everyone picks up something when no one is looking and slips it in his pocket. Everyone covers up his sin. We live in a society that encourages us to make excuses. We don't need any encouragement to do that. We are born knowing how to pass the buck. So that's the first point I want to make. I'm talking to you about repentance because Paul, now having told them about God and that he's not an idol and he he doesn't live in a temple made by hands, but we live and move and have our being in him. And then this God speaks and this God... uh, says, well, I want you to repent of your sin. And I'm saying to you, the first thing that that requires is for you to be honest with others and honest with God. Secondly, you've got to remember the fall of your father, Adam. We're all chips off the old block. And what our first parents did... We do, because we have genetically received a a nature, a fallen nature, from our father. It goes back to Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden. You remember how the serpent came to Eve and sweet-talked her into taking and eating the fruit. And she offered some then to Adam, and he didn't challenge what she was doing. He ate the fruit too knowing full well that God has said, you can have all the fruit from all the trees in the garden, except then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that, you'll die. And he ate it, and the world changed. Cold winds began to blow. And shadows fell where there had been sweet sunshine. Wild beasts came out from the thicket, And thorns grew. And the children hated one another. And one child killed another child. And east of Eden became a most unfriendly place. Fear entered the heart of man for the first time. So that when God walked in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't go running up and walk with him and talk to him about their lives. But they hid from him. Sin had changed Everything. We are Adam's children. We are born knowing how to pass the buck. My brother, my sister, we said. Remember how God called out to Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I I, I hid because I was naked. God said, who told you you were naked? And then the dreaded question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from. And Adam is caught, red-handed, stripped of all excuses. And God knows. And Adam did 
what all of us usually do. He passed the buck. His answer is a classic form of evasion. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The woman you put here with me, Adam passed the buck twice. First it was the woman, then it was the woman you put here. Lord, it was her fault. She gave me the fruit, and so I ate it. What was I supposed to do? Uh, Say no and watch her pout all day? And anyway, who put her in the garden? You did. She wasn't my idea. I'm not complaining, Lord, because she's beautiful and cute and all that. But I didn't have this particular problem when there was just me and the animals in the garden. Adam passes the buck twice. There was no repentance. And so it goes. Repentance is an evangelical grace. It's a gift from God that we cry to him that he will give us. The first man, the father of the human race, is the man who passed the buck. Now, the Bible is telling us something very significant. It's our nature to deny our guilt and try to shift the blame to others. That's what the first part of Genesis 3 is all about. It's no coincidence that the first sin led to the first cover-up. The first disobedience led to the first denial. The first trespassing led to the first buck-passing, and there was no repentance. And in the thousands of years that have happened since that event, nothing has changed. Human nature is the same. Passing the buck is our spiritual bloodstream. We do it now. Just as our father Adam did it back then, In Adam we live. In Adam we refuse to take responsibility for what we've done. In Adam we are strangers to repentance. Adam established the pattern. And it's come down through a DNA to us today. We're defensive. We we don't like this sermon. We are disobedient. It leads to guilt. It leads to shame. That leads to fear. That leads to hiding. And it leads to blaming other people for the mess we're in. Third thing I want to say to you is you've got to learn from Solomon's counsels. Now, my fundamental thesis, you understand, you're coming with me now, aren't you? My fundamental thesis is repentance is being able to say, I was wrong. I did wrong. Blessed is the man who says those words. Because that man is on his way to spiritual health. If you want a verse then to justify my thesis, then it's Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. See what Solomon says? When, when we sin, we have two options. Option one is to conceal it. 
And that means to cover it up, to make excuses, to rationalize, to pass the book. When that happens, we don't prosper. We don't mature. We don't change for the better. We don't prosper emotionally. We, we, we just have a guilty conscience. And when, when we get on our knees to pray, this sin jumps down in front of us and looks at us. In the words of Psalm 32 and the third verse, our bones waste away and our strength is sapped. We suffer. We suffer physically and, and mentally because we conceal our sins. Nothing works right. Solomon says, whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. He alone who seeks mercy finds mercy. To confess means to own up to what you did. When you confess, you say, yeah, guilty as charged. It was me. I did it. And to renounce your sin means to take steps now. That you don't find yourself late at night in the presence of a member of the opposite sex. That you don't go to websites. That you don't cheat in, in writing papers. When you renounce your sin, you say, I've really got to deal with that. I must find time to deal with these things. I've been walking the wrong path, and and now I'm I'm not going to walk that path any longer. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to deceive. I'm not going to lust. I'm going to change the direction of my life. I was Aren't they hard words to say? No one finds it easy to say, I was wrong. Most of us would rather do anything than admit that we were wrong. Now, most of you are too young to remember a harmless TV series called Happy Days. There was a character in, in, in that series called Fonzie. And he was too cool to ever admit he was wrong. Uh, Richie Cunningham would say to him, go ahead. Say it. Admit it. You were wrong. So Fonzie would go, I was... And he couldn't get the word out. So he would end up saying, I was... Not right. (laughs) But not right is not the same as saying wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you're not right, well, nobody knows what you're meaning. Not right is not the same as saying, I've done wrong, I've said wrong, I've been wrong, I am wrong. And sometimes we make excuses that are so subtle that we don't realize what we're doing. A man describes to me... um, tension that's come between him and his wife and he says to me all I said was is your mother coming again 
Now, you don't have to be an Einstein to figure out that you're in trouble the moment those words come out of your mouth. Whenever we preface our words with, all I said was, we've made a a big mistake. They are four of the most destructive words in the English language. They imply that you are sane, you are logical, you are sensible, you are wise, you are loving, and the other person is a nut. And when you are using those four words, you are saying, it's not my fault, I haven't got the problem, somebody else has the problem. As long as you say that, there is no true repentance. As long as you continue to say that, you can't be forgiven as long as you continue to say that. Relationships will remain tense and broken. As long as you say that, you will struggle with bitterness and resentment. As long as you say that, you will be the same stranger to the abundant life that Jesus Christ came into the world to give to men and women as you were when you came into this building an hour ago. As long as you blame others, your life will remain broken and fragmented. You'll never know. Holiness and gentleness and deeming other people better than yourself and mental health and spiritual health. Jesus saw a greedy tax collector. He saw him Of all places, he was in a temple. A man who had ruined the lives of many people. Some of them had been thrown into prison because they they couldn't pay what they should have paid. And families were distraught, and they were even thinking of selling their children into slavery. And this man, this man was responsible for it all. And there came a blessed time in his life, when he faced up to what he was, when he saw himself and realized and he was filled with remorse. So, I'll go to church, he said. And for him that meant going to the temple. And there at the temple he hung his head and he looked down at the dust and he couldn't look at anyone and he couldn't look up to heaven and he just beat his breast savagely And he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said that when he walked out of that place, his his tail between his legs, he walked out justified. God declared him righteous. But the moral men in that temple who came to boast about how decent and good and law-abiding and generous they were, they remained in their sin. The fourth thing I want to say to you is, you've got to learn to say, I've sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God commands all men everywhere to bow before him and and acknowledge that they are no exception, that you too have sinned. And not tell me, or not tell me on Friday in a confessional, but 
to go to God and bow before God and say, I have sinned. Luke 15, Jesus tells the most beloved story, I suppose, that's ever been told about a young man who felt an urge to leave his father's house. It's a familiar story. Every family has someone in their family who has behaved just like this young man. He asked for his portion of the family estate, and then this country bumpkin, he left for a city far away. And there he squandered his money on wild living, days of partying, and weeks of partying, and months of partying, until he didn't have a bean. He spent it all. And now friendless and broke and destitute, he found himself in a desperate state without the structure of a family to go to, to help him. And although he was covered in shame and drowning in deep regret, he didn't go home. He applied for a job with a farmer and the farmer said, yes, you can look after the pigs. His wage was a pittance and he was so hungry, he would have eaten the stuff that the pigs were eating. And at that precise moment then, when he was as low as you could go, a light switched on in his brain. And he saw himself. It illuminated his past and the past months and his folly and the resentment he built up at home towards his brother and towards his father. He saw his own stupidity that had got him into this mess. He no longer said, my father's to blame for all this, living here in this dump, in back of beyond. That's the problem with life. No longer would he pretend that he was someone he wasn't. And in that moment of self-revelation, he saw what he'd become. And more than that, he saw there was a way back. The strange irony of his situation hit him like a ton of bricks that his father's servants, they had a nice little cottage in the grounds and they had food to eat. And He, his master's son, was living with the pigs. I'm going to get away from these stinking pigs, he said. I'm going back home, and when I get there, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And with that, he got up, and he scorned the pigs and turned his back on the guy who was paying him, brushed himself down, picked up the one or two things he had, and began the long journey back. He was still a hundred yards from the front door of the farmhouse when his father spotted him walking down the country lane. And before he knew what happened, there was this wild figure running, gasping, weeping, coming towards him, sweeping him off his feet, crushing him, kissing him and saying, Welcome home, son. And the son began to repeat the words he'd memorized Father, I have sinned against heaven and against uh, your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father cut him short. He would hear no more. He shouted to his servants who came padding after him, kill the fatted calf, bring the best robe, put sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger, find it, call the neighbors, 
Spread the good news. Tell everyone you see this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. No more sleeping with the pigs. Now I just make one observation. This man whom we call the prodigal son turned his whole life around when he said three simple words, I have sinned. He said it when he was living with the pigs. He said it when he was far from home. He said it when he was broke and hungry. Three words meant from his heart turned his life around. The boy repented. It's a parable of my life and of many of your lives too. When we have sinned, we first seek some other way of escape from our guilt and our folly. We look for a job. Old people who have been conned out of thousands of pounds by fraudsters who phone them and uh, uh, tell them they're from the bank and have got from them their card details and have emptied their bank account. They are so ashamed of the folly of what they've done, they, they won't tell anyone. I'm saying to you, you've got to tell someone. And you couldn't tell anyone better than a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. A loving shepherd, a father, a savior who's loved you so much he's brought you here today to tell you the bad news about your unrepentance. And the good news is that he will hear every prayer for repentance he always has. And he always will. Jesus' parable is for everyone who is weary of eating with the pigs. If you are ready to come home, then I've got good news for you. Your father, your father is coming to you now. His arms are open wide. He knows where you've been and what you've done and still his arms of love would embrace you. That's what the grace of God is all about. Um, Shorter Catechism, question 87, what is repentance unto life? The answer is repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after a new obedience. But the phrase that struck me in that wonderful definition is an apprehension of the mercy of God in, in Christ. He has, he has some hope. There's hope for him. He's behaved atrociously. He sinned as bad as any man. He sinned like the prodigal son has sinned or like the publican in the temple had sinned. He has sinned. But God is merciful to the chief of sinners. And so he will be merciful to me. That's what he has seen. He believes when he comes to God, God won't say, what are you doing here? 
go back to your pigs. He won't say that. If you are acknowledging your sin this morning, you can come home. If you repent and turn from your sin, you can start all over. You can be washed. You can have a new heart. You can be forgiven. You don't have to live the rest of your life in hiding to be the quiet one who sits in the corner in family gatherings because you're sure ashamed of what you've done. You don't have to eat with the pigs forever. It's possible, and it depends on one thing. You have to do what the prodigal son did. You have to say, Father, I've sinned. And when you do that, you find the mercy that Solomon talks of in Proverbs 28. When you do that, you discover what John said in the first chapter of his letter, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My last point is that uh, you must... uh, No, your greatest problem is unrepentance. You thought your biggest problem was your shyness or your biggest problem was you couldn't make the grade or your your biggest uh, problem was relationships and you couldn't... I'm telling you, your biggest problem is your refusal to repent. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a way for man to rise to this sublime abode. There's a way of reconciliation and union with Christ. There's a way to get peace with God. No matter how you've walked the waterfront, however deep you've fallen, and it's to turn from our sins and not, like Adam, make excuses any longer. The day for making excuses is over. Through Jesus Christ, it's possible to be forgiven. That's the good news. And the bad news is, if you refuse to admit that anything's wrong, you can never be forgiven. Never, never, never. And you will continue to live a fragmented life, a broken life, a confused life, a divided life. You are contributing to your own self-destruction. But if you own up to your mistakes, if you don't lie, then you can be forgiven. I know three hard words. Three very, very hard words. The hardest words you can say, I was wrong. But they are the beginning of new life. And this is where your spiritual journey must begin. If you want to know the releasing of the gracious um, energy of the Holy Spirit into your life and know more of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. You start with repentance. You start by saying, I was wrong. I have sinned.
You say, our Lord Jesus calls sinners, you say. You, you, you might find some comfort from that. But you know the sentence says, he calls sinners to repentance. That's what he calls them to. And if you're not repenting, has he called you? Has Jesus Christ called you? Don't be the uncalled. Because this is the day when the, the Savior has, has brought you here. For you to know you are going to start a new life now. An honest life with God. A life of humble, daily sinning and daily saying, at the end of the day, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm, oh, I'm so silly. I never learn. Please help me. And God forgives and washes us and cleanses us and sets us right again and again. The demand he makes comes to all the nations of the world. There are a million churches like this church and a million pulpits like this pulpit. And the same message of repentance will be preached to all the nations until the end of the world, until Jesus comes. And God will buy repentance and faith in the Savior build his church and deliver us from ruined lives and make our lives really count in your family, in the world, and for Jesus Christ from now on. You count for Jesus by repenting. Let us pray. We ask thee, Father, not only to teach us about repentance, but to give the grace of repentance now to everyone here who as yet is making excuses and won't bow before you and say, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Change me, forgive me, make me a new person. Oh, that everyone here who doesn't have that assurance may have it today. Please glorify your Son by hearing our prayers for sinners. We ask in the Saviour's name, Amen.